The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The enemy we have to face down is inflation. You can't overstate how much a short-term mindset dominates Westminster. The cost of living crisis is not going away. It's very real for people. We've got to focus very much on the things that will really bring back growth. The UK has certainly been a very strong supporter of Ukraine from the outset. We have to stay the course to make sure inflation falls all the way back to the 2% target. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. Coming up, a conversation with Alistair Campbell about where next for politics and what people can do if they're feeling frustrated. Um, But another name that's been in the news a lot over the weekend, uh, someone who is uh, perhaps looking for a bit of direction. Are you talking about Suella Braverman's driving? Perhaps. I haven't seen her on the roads recently. (laughs) I'm not sure that she's been struggling for direction, but she might have been speeding. Now, this has been reported by the Sunday Times that she got a speeding ticket and she asked her civil servant what to do with it and to sort it out for her, which is potentially a breach of the ministerial code. So that is a big headache for the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak as he gets back from the G7 meeting in Japan. What he really wanted to focus on was his better relations with the EU, resetting relations with China. what Britain's doing to help Ukraine. But instead, he's having to answer questions about the person who, it seemed pretty clear last week, wanted his job. Yeah, and I suppose um, I am wondering why we are talking about people speeding tickets. And I think that our next guest, Alistair Campbell, agrees with me on this front. But I suppose um, it just shows the weakness of the Prime Minister, perhaps the challenge. But it's again a focus in the Conservative government on individual ministers and individual ministerial behaviour. And I think that's really quite problematic. Well, the weakness of the Prime Minister is certainly the attack line of the Labour Party. Yes. Keir Starmer's been asking, why did you appoint Suella Braverman when she uh, already was sacked from Liz Truss's government for breaching security rules over her emails? Why haven't you sacked her yet? And why haven't you launched an independent ethics probe? Maybe we'll get one later this week. But the reason that Suella Braverman is... Uh, so it, she means more than, yes. than than just this. It's not just like Dominic Raab and the bullying claims. It's because she underscores the split in the Conservative Party. You might say she's braver to come out about this post the local election results, mm. not what Rishi Sunak wanted. We're going to get these migration figures this week expected to show a surge in migration into the UK in 2022 when the Conservatives have had long-standing promise to cut in migration numbers, particularly after Brexit. And we got a bit of a taste of the response from the Prime Minister too in the post-G7 press conference when asked about it, his response was do you have any questions about the summit? Which was icy. And now to a man most politicians would kill to have at their side as an election approaches. It's journalist turned political aide Alistair Campbell who was once dubbed the King of Spin. He also has a podcast but we're not going to talk about that. His new book But What Can I Do? offers answers to what has gone wrong with politics and what Britons can do to help fix it. Alistair, thank you so much for being on the programme. 
My pleasure. So your book's essentially a call to arms to the younger generation to get involved in politics, and yet you never became a politician. You cover why in the book. Can you talk us through that a little bit? Yeah, by the way, it's not just aimed at young people. It's aimed at anybody who feels that they just feel politics has got to change. But I think I think the young generation are a very important part of that. Yeah, I do, I do recognise that me not being an elected politician is a bit of an elephant in the room because I'm asking other people to really get stuck in. Two points, really. The first is that politics is not just about being an elected politician. You know, trade unions are politics. Journalism, to some extent, is politics. Campaigns, charities. There's all sorts of different ways you can make a difference. But I, I sort of, I say in the book that I think I will always regret not having stood as a politician in my own right. I give the reasons why at each stage I didn't. It was to do with the jobs that I was doing at the time and my state of mind at the time. Um, but at the same time, you know, somebody's, some people will say, well, if you know you're, you're going to regret something, you know what to do, you do it. But I also think I might regret doing it as well. And that's just to do with me and my history and my family and my mental health and everything else. So it is, it is, I accept, a bit of an elephant in the room, but uh, I have tried to address it as best I can. I suppose my question, um, you know, when I was reading through it, is why you would go into Westminster, given the kind of levels of abuse that female politicians, other politicians get, and also that staffers reportedly get from some MPs. I mean, you kind of use this word perseverance. Is that really mm. enough? Well, I'm glad you picked up my, my new word that I've invented. I'm desperate <laughs> yes. to get into the dictionary, perseverance, <laughs> which is a combination of perseverance and resilience. Um, look, I don't think it's as... It's, I, I certainly don't sugarcoat what politics is like, but I think actually most people in politics are pretty good people. And I think that you, we hear a lot about the, the bad people, you know, and of course... I should, don't think we can underestimate how much damage we've done to our body politic. The fact that we've had four years of Trump and several years of Johnson in, in the UK and populism kind of a virus that's rife around the democratic world. But I, I, I would point people in the book to the, the conversation I recount with Julia Gillard, former Prime Minister of Australia, who, who endured a lot of misogyny, a lot of abuse. And, and you're right, women get it worse and women of colour get it even worse. But... She makes the point that when she looks back on her career, she doesn't really remember all the abuse and the bad stuff. She remembers the stuff she got done. And I think that's something that's important, <clears throat> excuse me, important to hold on to. It's like, you know, today, I didn't, I, I actually didn't realise this. I just spotted it on the on social media when I was in the, in the on the in the train coming into today. Um, it's the 25th anniversary of the Northern Ireland, the referendum in Northern Ireland on the on the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. That is you know, I was a part of that alongside Tony Blair and other people. And that is that means way, way, way more than anything that some guy in his underpants on his mum's sofa is going to say on social media. You talk about the three P's of where it all went wrong for politics, polarisation, populism and the post-truth era. Didn't the third begin not with Johnson and Trump, though, but under Tony Blair and George W. Bush with Iraq? No, I don't believe so. I, I, I understand why you're saying that, because we're constantly accused of having lied, and I know that we didn't. Um, and I understand why people objected to the policy then and now. But this is of a different order. You know, Boris, it used to be part of our constitutional arrangements that a prime minister who stood at the dispatch box and said something that, was, that turned out to be untrue, he knowingly misled the House of Commons, is a resigning offence. He stood up in the House of Commons 
and said there were no parties in Downing Street. And that's that's the one that people know about. But Boris Johnson lied all the time. He lied to get Brexit done. He lied to win the election to get Brexit done uh, with his oven ready deal. Um, Donald Trump, I, I, I can't remember the exact number, but I quote it in the book, the Washington Post calculated that Donald Trump lied on or said things that were unfactually wrong on more than 30,000 occasions. Vladimir Putin is a post-truth politician. This is not a war. It's a special military operation to defeat the Nazis in Ukraine. It's on a different level, a different mm. order. Yeah, no, I I can see um, that defence. I suppose, though, I mean, the other criticism, I'll put it boldly, is... That again, going back to the era, you know, when you were sort of at the height of politics, there was also a view that you were very robust with your dealings with the press, with civil servants. And again, that's kind of seen in some ways perhaps as the root of, um, you know, things being quite epically bad with the civil service now. I mean, I'm thinking the likes of Dominic Robb, that actually there are roots to some of this that go back quite far. Well, that one I can deal with 100%. One of the things I'm actually proudest of is that of all the, the the criticism that came my way, I would argue that most of it came via the media and via the Tories. Uh, civil servants that work for me, you, you go and find me one that didn't say that they were well motivated, enjoyed working for me. Uh, and I just think these myths develop because I've got to tell you that po- part of post-truth in our culture is our media. You know, we now have a whole range of newspapers on the right who don't really exist to hold truth to power. They exist to ventilate a lot of the lies that the politicians tell. There's barely a day goes by that the Daily Express doesn't say that Brexit is going very, very well. There's not, you know, there's barely a business person in the country who thinks that's true. I did events over the last three days. I did three schools, uh, two events with Rory Stewart on the podcast that you don't want to talk about, and three <laughs> events in Scotland, okay? I asked every single audience, is Brexit going well or badly? Not a single person put their hands up to say it was going well, not one. And yet, the government keeps telling us it's going well. We've got a situation, you know, this very day with the whole Suella Braverman thing. These are people for whom standards in public life have been totally eroded. And I'm sorry to compare it to the era that we were in charge, and, and particularly on, I accept I was very robust with the media because with the, our media as it is, if you're not robust, they'll just absolutely destroy you. You've got to stand up to them. You've got to call them out when they call, when they are talking nonsense. But I think we have a different level and a different order of post-truth mm. in both the government that we have, politicians who are being successful around the world, and our media. Okay, so then in that case, I mean, also the post-truth era has existed now for a few years, hasn't it? And it re-emerged, to my mind, with the CNN town hall with uh, Donald Trump, uh, the former president, in, in the sense that somebody that has been accused many, many, many times of lying on many different subjects was again given a huge media platform, albeit over in the US, you know, and the the uh, reporter tried to hold um, him accountable when, um, you know, when, when she felt that uh, he was straying in terms of what he was talking about. I mean, have the political parties got a decent enough handle on this? We're only 18 months out from a UK election. You know, social media, we know, can can spread these lies so quickly. So do you think that anyone's got a handle on it yet? Um, well, it's worse than not having a handle on it. Politicians like Trump, and, and I suspect there'll be people working in the Conservative Party working on this as well, it's not that they don't have a handle on it. They do have a handle on it. The question they ask themselves is, how do they exploit it? So, for example, they actually will use the fact that you can use social media 
to spread false information. And likewise, the other thing that that I think people, politicians really haven't got a handle on, and we talked to Hillary Clinton on our podcast about this, and today on, with Leo Varadkar, the Irish Taoiseach, is artificial intelligence and chat GPT and the, the impact that that's going to have on our politics if we're not careful. So the, the short answer is, no, they haven't got to handle it. But in some cases, the populists, it's because they don't want to control it. They want to exploit it. So we're kind of in a generational shift in terms of social media, but also policy. I'm thinking about housing and healthcare. How does either mm. party capture both sides of that divide? It seems like Keir Starmer's made the decision to lean towards the young, at least on housing policy. Well, I hope so, because, I mean, housing is one of those issues that I've, I've never understood this. It, housing should be one of like the top flight issues. And yet, you know, I don't think I could name, I mean, I follow this stuff closely. I couldn't tell you who the housing secretary was. Um, I don't even if, I, I don't know what level of government it even sits at. So I do hope that Keir Starmer is making a, a bigger deal of it. I think part of the problem with this is that our debate around housing, sorry, but we come back to the relationship between politics and the media, is actually, we don't really have a debate in the media about housing. We have a debate about house prices. And actually, the the when you the, the sort of housing needs that people have. I mean, I live in London, and and I've noticed. I mean, for example, Camden, where I live, I was doing an event the other day with the leader of Camden Council, Georgia Gould, and she was making the point that Camden has got a real problem with um with its, with its birth rate. Why? Because a lot of young people who are trying to have a family cannot afford to live in London. And a big, big, big part of that is not just the cost of living, it's it's about housing. So they're the debates that we've got to address. And I think that, I mean, I listened this morning to Keir talking, he's doing a big speech about the health service today. I do think a bit of honesty with the public about how long some of these problems are going to take to fix is important. Because the other thing that populism does, it gives simple solutions to complex problems. And there are no such things as simple solutions to complex problems. But that's a harder sell than trying to do what, you know, we see politicians do across the political spectrum, which is simplify things to create a simpler narrative. How do you get from those complex solutions and sell them to voters? Well, it's I'm not pretending that it's easy, but Macron did it. Um, I would argue that Tony Blair... Well, I mean, he didn't when it comes to the yellow vests. I mean, that was the problem. He was selling something to do with climate change. People were like, but wait, my petrol prices are growing up. Yeah, but he he also did win uh, a second term, which is pretty rare for a French president these days. My point is that he didn't he didn't just say everything is going to be simple. He actually made a point at the last all the trouble they're having on the streets at the moment about pension reform. He did say at the election, as he was being elected, we are going to have to change our pension system if we're going to build an economy for the future mm. with an aging demography. So my point is that I, I agree with you that it's hard. In fact, we, we you sound are you from the Republic? You sound I'm from Dublin, yeah. Yeah. So we with the interview with uh, we talked to Leo Varadka, your Taoiseach, about this on the podcast this morning. About he's making the point that he said that when he was an opposition politician, he did indulge in a bit of populism because that's part of how you campaign. You give people the sense that vote for me and I can make things happen. And he points out that it, you know in government it's a lot harder, and you have to give people that sense of the long term. In a way, you have to do a bit of both. You've got to give people the sort of top line message that is rooted in what you want to do, the big picture messaging. But then you also do have to work through 
the fact that something like you look at the waiting list and the, the was it seven and a half million people on a waiting list mm. uh you look at the, the, there's one of the worst things the tory government done was stopping the the building schools for the future program you know the idea that you're going to turn all the problems in our health and education system around in like 10 minutes even you know three years five years you've got to be honest about people you're talking about long-term stuff but i think the public are ready for that i actually do think that one of Keir Starmer's strengths is, I mean, people sort of, the media keeps saying, oh, he's a bit dull, he's a bit boring, he doesn't got, he hasn't got charisma, all that stuff. I actually think people are a bit sick of the whole politics of showbiz that we had with Johnson, we had with Truss. And now, you know, you turn on the, the radio or the television this morning, and what are they talking about? Suella Braverman and a speeding thing. And, and, and people are just sick to death of these people not actually doing their job. But when the same- they are trying to do their job, they're not but, doing very well. But at the same time, you're saying that even the most principled of politicians have to indulge in some populism. Well, they have to they have to they have to communicate very, very clearly what they tried to do. That's why ultimately you do need a slogan. You do need a simple message. But from the simple message flows an understanding of the complicated things that you have to do. So, for example, you know, Keir Starmer this morning was talking about the health service and he he set out two or three areas where he said, we're going to do A and we're going to fund it by doing B. And he's very specific. And then the interviewer pressed him on other areas and he was he was honest about it and saying, well, that is going to be for the longer term. And then the interviewer was saying, well, hold on a minute. People want to know this, this, this. And, you know, people want to know everything and they want to know that things are going to be perfect overnight. But the honest answer to that is that they're not. And I think the public are much readier for that kind of more honest messaging about politics, because the truth is we haven't had it since the the new Labour days. We really haven't. I mean, I was in a school the other day um, talking about the, the, the book and talking about my career and stuff like that. And one of the teachers stood up and said, this is in a class full of teenagers, a room full of teenagers, 15, 16, 17. And he said, these students have have known nothing other than this Tory government. Can you tell them a few stories about things that you did in government with Tony Blair so that they least understand that governments can do things that make their lives better. His point being, and I think ha- he was right, by the way. Well, hang on, Alistair, being- hang on, hang on. I think I think this is sounding like a pitch for Keir Starmer, a very strong one. Uh, I, I would be taking notes if I were on his team. I get it, and I think the public gets it, and the polling shows it, right, that the Conservatives seem to be pretty exhausted after 13 years in government. I mean, I've heard... An- they're not just exhausted, they're bad, and they've done nothing good for the country. Okay, and I've heard Worse that view from me. Yeah, and I've heard that view from you a number of times, and I've also heard your view on on Keir Starmer, which to me seems actually a little bit lukewarm, if I can say. And I so I suppose the follow up question I want to ask you is how deep you think the Labour bench is. If we're talking about being bolder, the public ready for change, and for you know more competence, is mm. the Starmer team able to deliver it? In your view. Well, we won't know 100% for sure until, unless and until they get into government. But if I look at, I certainly think, listen, it's a lot stronger But you've than got to was. judge now as a voter, if you are a voter. Yes, of course you do. But, you judge, but, you, but I, I, I don't think there'll be many voters will be sitting around saying, I'm not going to vote Labour unless I can be sure that the Under Secretary of State for so Welfare Reform is going to be a really good person or a really good minister. If I look at, do I think Keir Starmer has the potential to be a good Prime Minister, I do. Do I think that Angela Rayner adds a real strength to Labour's 
campaigning and would be an important figure in government. I do. Do I think Rachel Reeves, could I see Rachel Reeves sitting down with finance ministers from around the world or the Bank of England governor and holding her own in debates about the future of economic policy? I do. Do I think West Streeting would be better than, <laughs> is it, who is the health secretary these days? Barclay. Yes, I do. Do I think that Peter Kyle has got real talent. Do I think that Pat McFadden, who was part of our team, so then, would be a so really then, no change in terms of let's say reforming um, and, and going to proportional representation or reforming the way in which the UK well, governs itself. Well, that's a different question. You're asking me about whether the, I think the Labour front bench is, is is strong. Is it as strong as it was in 1997? I don't know the answer to that. But I, if you'd have asked me in 1997. Would we have had a really effective cabinet where people like Donald Dewar and Mo Molam and Jack Cunningham and Margaret Beckett would get stuff done? You can't tell for a hundred percent for sure. You can you have to make a judgment. But the point about um, I do think on things like proportional representation or lowering the voting age or political education in schools or citizens' assemblies, I think there's lots that Labour can do in that area. But, you know, Keir, I think, is being quite strategic in setting out. He's got his five areas, his big five missions. He's going to be setting them out again and again and again between now and the election. But I do think we need more than a change of government. I think that part of the theme of the book is we need a change of our politics and we need more. I thought it was a wonderful story in um, Northern Ireland the other day. I was doing a, the event I was doing in Glasgow. Um, one of the audience stood up and said, look, you know, this thing about young people, I mean, are you really seeing it's serious that you want people in the 20s who've got no real experience of life being in their parliament? And I said, yes, I, I do think we need a bit of that. You don't just want 25-year-olds, but you want, you know, one or two scattered around the place would be good. And then literally the next day, an 18-year-old was elected to the to a council in Northern Ireland. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Alice, so, you, you know, we just on, shake things up. You've touched on health and your own mental issue and mental health issues a few times in this conversation. I just want to pick up on it. You were in a mental health epidemic and it's adding to economic inactivity. I wonder what you say is the policy answer. You know, you've got more awareness around mental health, hence more diagnosis. But then there are also more issues. You've got people glued to their phones and social media. At what point do you tell people they need to just toughen up because paying for benefits while people are signed off just costs too much and the labour market needs them? And at what point do you say you need to have some of that perseverance? Work isn't always enjoyable or even bearable, but you've just got to do it. Um, I'm not sure that sort of telling somebody who's, you know, psychologically struggling just to toughen up is, is necessarily a good approach. But I do think that there's a... I think one of the reasons I write about perseverance and, 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 and the importance of resilience and the importance of confidence and so forth, I think these things can be developed. I think they can be taught and I think they can be developed. I write a lot in the book about how, you know, Eton College alone has produced three times more prime ministers than the, than the Labour Party in, in our history. I mean, it's a ridiculous stat when you think about it. But what do people get, other than the, the wealth and the privilege into which many of them are born, what do they get at the top private schools? They do get given this sense of confidence that their opinion matters, that their voice is important, that they're entitled to be heard. And we have to extend that right across the piece. And we have to build people's confidence. And as my approach to, to the mental health agenda more generally, and I was pleased that actually in his speech, Keir Starmer was talking about suicide as one of the three big killers that has to be addressed. I really do believe that we've just got to have a much more preventive approach in the mental health field. We don't really have a mental health service in this country. We have a mental illness service. If you get very, very ill mentally, 
you, you will get some sort of treatment. It might not be great, but if you if you're threatening to jump off a bridge, uh, you will get they'll find you a bed somehow, somewhere. But in the journey between starting to feel a bit shaky and a bit anxious and a bit nervous and a bit depressed, whatever it might be, and climbing onto that bridge, there's so many who are just not getting the help and the support that they need. And that isn't just, by the way, a national health service issue. That's a that's an employment issue. It's about it's also about how we exist as communities and how we exist as neighbours. So I kind of I don't agree with your general thing that it's just about toughen up, but I do agree that we need to take. You know, the last book I wrote about depression was actually saying we, you know, my mental health is a lot better since I decided to try to take greater control of myself in terms of the way that I live. Okay, Alistair Campbell, thank you very much for your time and talking to us. Your book, but what can I do? Is out now. So look, I think the interview with Alistair Campbell was absolutely fascinating. I mean. Uh- the extent to which he also talked about how little uh, of any good had happened in government since the Tony Blair era, his time in politics, I thought was remarkable. But also, he didn't fully answer the question on the generational divide. I think that that potentially could be the next general election, you know, won and lost on whether you appeal to the older or the younger voter. And I don't think the Labour Party has decided which side of the camp it's on right now. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the parts of that story that he pointed out as well is that election of the councillor in Northern Ireland, the 18-year-old from the Alliance Party, uh, elected as Northern Ireland had its local elections last week. Uh, So he's an Alliance Party representative. Lewis Boyle is his name, and he's starting his A-levels next week. (laughs) So he's got, you know, some, some some other things on hand. But look, actually, it is important to just mention a little bit about the Northern Ireland local elections. Lots of interesting threads coming out of that. One of them is that Sinn Féin became the biggest party in local government in Northern Ireland, 144 of the 462 council seats. That's a gain of 39 seats. This follows on, of course, to Sinn Féin becoming the biggest party in Stormont in the elections last year. There is still... Uh, no government in Northern Ireland. We're now heading on for, you know, we've been a year since those elections last year to Stormont. We're looking at about 15 months since it was last a functioning power sharing government. That's because of objections from the Democratic Unionist Party. Uh, their um, dr- vote share dropped ever so slightly, although they held on to the same number of seats. Now, Geoffrey Donaldson uh, said that the DUP vote had held up, quote, remarkably well. Uh, after this, even though he is looking now at their main rivals, Sinn Féin, being uh, a much bigger party in the local at the local level as well as at the Stormont level as well. Um, all of this now leading to fresh calls for the restoration of power sharing in Northern Ireland, notably from the head of the civil service in Northern Ireland, Jane Brady. Civil servants are running local government in Northern Ireland because there are no ministers. They're facing a massive budget shortfall. Uh, we're talking about £800 million worth of cuts having to come in the next year. Huge effect on public services in Northern Ireland, which were already struggling Think of just the NHS in Northern Ireland, the longest waiting lists in the UK. Uh, let's think about then tomorrow. That's it from us for today, but we'll be back with much more. And actually, the figures on migration don't come until Thursday, so we'll have full coverage of those then. And we'll also get the latest inflation data for the UK. Could it still be in double digits? We'll find out on Wednesday. But that's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock. Our audio engineer was John Wasserman. I'm Stephen Carroll. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Caroline Hetker. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.